Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 71. I hope you guys are having a fantastic week out there. Summer has officially started. Hope everybody had a great Memorial Day weekend. Uh, I know we sure did here in Central Kentucky. The weather is just absolutely beautiful. We have a fantastic conversation for you today. I am going to be joined in just a moment by the great Ed Toth. Uh, You will know Ed, of course, from his time in Vertical Horizon. I jokingly said to Ed that they were everywhere in 1999. You just couldn't turn on a radio without hearing that song. Uh, And Ed has been out on the road for the past 15 years with just the legendary Doobie Brothers. So it's going to be a fantastic conversation. So stay tuned after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand, and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at loscabosdrumsticks.com Follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, everybody. As I mentioned, we're about to be joined by the great Ed Toth. Um, Ed uh, is originally from Connecticut, and um, he he tells us all about his upbringing and and how he got to be a drummer. But he comes from uh, a family of musicians. Ed is very well versed in all things drumming. He's a fantastic musician. Uh, attended the University of Miami, um, and then ended up in Boston. And I, I love the story of how he became a member 
member of Vertical Horizon. So so make sure you listen for that because it's just such a cool story. Uh, but of course, you know, Ed has been out with the Doobie Brothers now for 15 years. And if you haven't seen the Doobie Brothers in concert, you get exactly what you expect. It is just the, the highest level of professionalism and they play all the hits and it sounds just like the record. Uh, and Ed is just doing a killer job out there with them. And uh, to top it all off, Ed is just a genuinely uh, world-class nice guy. So please help me welcome to the drum shuffle, Ed Toth. E.T., good afternoon, brother. How you doing, man? I am doing well. How about yourself? I can't complain. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's warm weather and, you know, we've kind of been alluding to it here on the drum shuffle tour season is about to start up for everybody. I know it's no different for you. Correct. Yeah. So uh, I know you guys are doing uh, quite a few, you know, dates uh, this summer. Uh, busy, busy touring season for, for you. Um, what are you looking forward to the most this summer? I'm just looking forward to getting back out there. We took uh, probably one of the longest breaks that uh, the Doobies have taken. This is my 15th year with the Doobies. And we had like four months off <laughs> like from Thanksgiving up until uh, when did we go out again? I guess in April. And uh, yeah, so I'm just kind of looking forward to getting back in the saddle. We did a few weeks uh, about a month ago. We did some theaters and then we uh, played a jazz fest in New Orleans, which was good fun. Um, and now we're in the middle of a, of a three week break. And then I start up again, uh, mid June, we're going to fly out to California and do some rehearsals for a few days and then, uh, start kicking it with Santana. Yeah, man, that's, which would be cool. That's going to be a, a heck of a tour. Uh, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's going to be a little bit different for you because I, I think you guys are taking Mark out on percussion this summer, right? Yeah, so Mark's, uh, Mark Quinones from the Almond Brothers has been with us now for a year. And uh, he's, he's I mean, he's in. He's a brother now. So uh, it's pretty great playing with him, I have to say. You know, when, when, when the Doobie thing went from being two drummers down to one drummer, um, that was all fine and dandy. But then, you know, I had sort of mentioned to the guys, I said, you know, there's percussion on practically every Doobie Brothers song, How, however little, whether it's just a tambourine and rocking down the highway or when you get into some of the later albums, you know, there's there's congas on stuff, there's congas on long train running. And I said, it'd be kind of cool to, to maybe explore the idea. If you're looking to beef up the rhythm section again, maybe hiring a percussionist is the way to go. And, you know, nothing happened for a little while. And then, uh, you know, we hit on this idea of of uh, of trying Mark out, and so we had him out sort of temporarily for some gigs last April. And it, I mean, it was for me and him, it was just immediate. And then, of course, it's all the X Factor stuff. Like, are you going to be able to ride a bus with this guy? You know, yeah. get along and all that stuff. And I don't know if you've ever met Mark, but he's one of the nicest guys in the business. So it's worked out great. So Mark will be out there with us again this year. It's going to be quite percussion heavy between, you know. Mark Quinones and, and uh, Carl Perrazzo and Pauly and Cindy, you know, all playing with Santana. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, man, it, it sounds like it. I mean, it, and Mark is just like the best of the best in the business in terms of, you know, a, a rock and roll 
kind of percussionist role. I mean, he did it for so long with the almonds. He he's just a master at that stuff. So I'm excited to see it actually. So yeah, it should be really good, you know. And then that was the other thing I said, you know, if we're going to get a percussionist, let's make sure we get a percussionist. Let's make sure let's make sure we don't get a drum set player who's looking for a gig, you know, <laughs> or bringing somebody's girlfriend or anything like that. Like let's let's get a professional percussionist. And you know, Mark's background is is salsa music. Yeah. Um like big time. I mean, that's what he was born into, that's what he grew up with and and what he excels at actually is, is, is that kind of thing. And just the fact that he could come out and he knows when to inject himself and when not to. And, and it's just like, we haven't talked, I don't think he and I have talked about a thing other than a couple of, you know, Hey, you, you take that break. I'll take this break. We'll do this break together kind of thing. Other than that, we've never had to sit down and say, you know, it's just worked from the first moment we played together, which was really, really cool. Yeah, there's nothing better than that. And, you know, I, I want to go on record, uh, you know, on this show and say this mad props to you and everybody in the doobie camp for not just saying, well, we'll just, you know, run an Ableton rig with percussion tracks because that, <laughs> right. you know, that seems to be the going thing these days is, you know, instead of paying another guy to be out on the road it's real easy just to buy, you know, a MacBook and run percussion tracks. Yeah, but what fun is that? And, you know, you're talking about an act that's been there for a really long time. You're talking about a Roots Rock act. Um, you know, uh, that never came up, thank goodness, because I would have. I would have put, I would have done my best to veto that. Yeah. Well, and, um, and rightly so, uh, you know, so, yeah. so mad props to you guys for not going that route. Well, I'll have to, I'll have to pass it on to the guys. I'm yeah. Sure pl be, uh, please do be fired up to hear it. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's just so prevalent now, you know, and especially like for the percussion stuff or even, you know, like the, the padded keys kind of thing. It's just, so prevalent. And, you know, I guess that leads me to a, a question and I want to kind of back up and, and go chronologically through your career. But when you're out on the road with the doobies, are you guys running a click or are you just organically going with it? No, the whole show's to a click still. Um, and I think that's just a leftover from the two drummer thing. Um, you know, they didn't have clicks back in the day. And then when I joined in 05, they, they were already using a click track. So, you know, I think a lot of it had to do with just keeping everybody honest, you know. Yeah. Um, you know, you had, you had two different kind of players uh, with Michael Hasek and Keith Knudsen. And then even when I joined, you know, Mike, Mike and I played different enough that, I, you know, I thought it was pretty good that the click track was there. But, you know, there are plenty of moments in rehearsals and, and uh, you know, where we'd play without it, you know. So it's a... I I have a little bit of uh, struggles, the wrong word, but I, you know, now that there's not two drummers anymore, I would like if we used it a lot less. Well, yeah, sure. Um, because we're all capable of doing it a lot less. And when that click track is not there, everybody's, you know, you have to listen to each other. And that's what music is. It's listening to each other. It's playing together. It's having those conversations together. It's easy to sort of not, be in the conversation when the clicks there. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've done enough, you know, recording sessions in my, you know, limited career 
to know that, you know, when you're when you're doing it to a click, I tend to focus on the click rather than, you know, creating the most expressive track that I can come up with. You know, it's, yeah. you're just like, I, I don't know, I, it's, I, it's not a time dictator, but it's certainly a time reference. And I tend to fo- over focus on the click. Correct. And I find that happening with, with some of the people, you know, it's like they're sort of into that world enough that it's like, you know, what, you know, I, I don't know. I, you know, I've just, it's a, it's a, it's a tough thing for me, but you know what? It's one of those things of like, you know what? I'm a side man. So, you know, there's very much a large amount of, you know, I, I do what I'm told. Well, yeah. I you mean, know? yeah, well, that keeps you I'm employed. Gonna, and if, if, if I'm, if I'm told there's going to be a click track, then there's going to be a click track and it's, it's cool. I can play with a click track. I'll, I'll give you what you need and you know, what you do is up to you. Right you on. Know? Yeah. So that's what we do. So I go in and count to four and, uh, I don't even count to four. Actually, it's Keith Knudsen's voice on the click that, that does the <laughs> that does the one, two, three, four. So uh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, for um, sure. And then we're in, you know, and, yeah. and you know it's dialed in pretty good, and it doesn't sound awful by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the thing with the click is you can't really go places. You know, with the click track, it's sort of okay. This is the song, and this is how it's going to go. And if there's any improv sections, they're going to be X amount of bars long, period. Right. As opposed to being, hey, you know, the sax player still has something to say. Let him keep going. You know, let's see where this goes, you know. Yeah. Well, um, there are other guys out there like, you know, I mean, I think about my buddy Mark Poise, who's out on the road with Tyler Farr. And, and he told me. He said, Tyler loves to kind of go away from the click and I have to chase him around, you know, you know, and I, you know, I can't imagine what a nightmare that would be trying to chase somebody when you got a click going in your ears, you know? Yeah. I don't have to chase anybody. Thankfully. I mean, occasionally you, you know, there's always the guitar player that likes to pull ahead a bit and everything, but it never gets off the rails or anything like that. So, well, that's you know, cool. and as a as a drum as as sort of the drummer as the the sort of uh, I guess sort of in you know if if it's a train I'm I'm driving it you know, um, you know I have to listen to that and sometimes I have to go with it and sometimes it's a non-issue but you know these guys have been playing these songs for so long yeah um, that rarely do we run into anything that involves like a conversation or anything. It's just, I mean, it's, it's all dialed in pretty good. Have you ever seen the band live? Oh yeah, sure. Of course. Many, yeah, many okay. times actually. So, and, and it's just, you know, the different, uh, you know, versions of the band over the years, um, you know, it's just, it's a band that you know what you're going to get when you go to a Doobie Brothers show. You know what I'm saying? It's absolutely, you yeah. know, it's, it's going to be as advertised. You're going to get, all the hits and they're going to sound perfect, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which it's is good stuff, which is as it should be. So let's completely transition. There's no good segue here, but let's go back because, you know, I always like to start at the very beginning. Um, sure. I, I know that you're um, a native of Connecticut, I believe. That's um, correct. And your dad was a musician. Is, is that right? 
Yeah, still is. Guitar player, uh, really good guitar player. I mean, everybody says that about their family members, but my dad is a really fantastic guitar player. Um, so was that, he, that was your start into the world of drumming or how, how? Yeah, kind, kind of. I mean, I don't remember, uh, there was no real sort of lightning moment for me because it was kind of always there, if that makes sense. Sure. And I think part of it was because, you know, my dad, my dad, when I was born, that's what my dad did. He was a full-time musician I worked in a music store for a little while, like a, that sold instruments and whatnot. But I mean, he held down a jazz gig in southeastern Connecticut where they played, you know, four or five nights a week for seven years. I mean, you know, show me those gigs, you know, now. I mean, there's a few of them here and there, but but not too many, you know. Um, yeah. And he he supported a small family doing this, you know. Um, so that was the that was a big part of it. And the fact that he was a bit of an audiophile. So he had a, a pretty big record collection. And so music was just everywhere from the minute I was born, you know? Yeah. Um, why the drums again, I'm not really sure. I do remember getting sort of a, a toy guitar when I was very young, like maybe three or so, and just not really being that interested in it, but I was always interested in, banging on pots and pans and Quaker Oats boxes and stuff with, with wooden spoons and all that. Um, which is totally how I started, you know, yeah. playing, playing along with the stuff that dad was playing in the house. So, um, that, those were really my beginnings. And then right around the time, I think I was six years old. Um, I actually got a, a, a bass drum and a snare drum and a cymbal. You know, there's a cymbal that mounted onto the kick drum, and there was a snare drum. Yeah, I know the those, I know the exact kit you're talking about. You know, <laughs> yeah, and, and those and those and that was sort of my first uh, my first drums. You know, and then that sort of started me on the path. I started taking some lessons when I was young, um, and I was kind of in and out of private lessons because my folks didn't always have the extra dough. You know, yeah. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd take for a while and then not take and then, and then take again. And, you know, the other thing too, and I can't overstate this enough is I, I think from fourth grade, uh, which would have had me at sort of nine years old. I mean, I, I had music every, like every day in public school. Wow. Every day. Yeah. Which, um, which doesn't so the, happen today at all. Not, no, not a lot. You, only here and there, you know? Um, so I was in a band uh, in, in elementary school and middle school, there was a band and there was a general music class that you could take in, in, uh, in middle school, which, which you'd learn about different histories of music and things like that. And then by the time I got to high school, um, you know, I was able to take music theory in high school, um, growing up, this is in the eighties, um, and a musicology class all in high school. Wow. So I had had a couple of years of music theory and, and so, and, you know, uh, and tied into that was some composition cause she made us write, you know? So they're not, I still have some of them. In fact, I had my daughter playing on her violin, some piece that I wrote when I was in high school and it, it just really wasn't <laughs> that good. But, but to, to learn that stuff and to exercise those muscles at a young age was stunning. And I suppose I was about a sophomore in high school when I just, 
I mean, I always kind of knew like, oh, playing music would be great. Like that would be my job. I want to, it was never kind of like, I want to be a rock star. It was always, I want to be a professional musician, you know? Um, there were certainly those rock star moments of, of wanting to travel and wanting to get up in front of big audiences and, and, you know, be in a drum magazine and all that stuff. But that was never the primary goal for me. The primary goal was just to, you know, can my job be playing music? Like if, if I have to get up in the morning and go to work, I would prefer to go play music than to do anything else. Right on. And by the time I was a sophomore in high school, that was to the detriment of like all my other subjects, <laughs> dude. I was a, I was an honor roll guy until like my second semester sophomore year. And then my grades in anything but music just started to plummet a little bit, you know? Yeah, that's that's the story of all of us, I think. Yeah, for sure. You know, well, so I, I guess I'm curious and, you know, I've, I've kind of heard, you know, through the grapevine, you know, we, we kind of talked about this offline a little bit, you know, we've got a lot of friends in common. Um, mm -hmm. and I've kind of heard through the grapevine that, that maybe your first paying gig was actually with your dad's band. Is, is that correct? It was. Yeah. So when I was about 13 or 14, the drummer in my, in my dad's, my dad had this sort of wedding band you know they do weddings and banquets and and you know playing all the top 40 songs of the day and the classics and then also you know if it was the dinner hour they'd sneak in like satin dolls and in the mood and you know that kind of thing and um this drummer uh his name was john pescatello and and he's the first drummer that i ever knew so this guy will always be sort of like a rock star to me you know of course because yeah to, to be young and to actually love the drums and, you know, know that your leanings are towards wanting to be a drummer and to actually know a drummer yeah, oh was yeah. like really cool. Like it didn't matter to me that he wasn't on TV or that he, his day gig was, he was worked in the insurance business. He just, he, he had what you wanted, you know, he was, he was the drummer. He was the drummer in my dad's band. It was yeah. like, you know, and I distinctively remember him showing me some things and, and all that. And unfortunately, John passed away uh, suddenly, had a heart attack. And um, this left my dad's band without a drummer. Now, at that point, uh, there were some occasions where if John couldn't make a rehearsal, I would, I would play in the, at the rehearsal. Um, or if John was running a little late, I would, I would go down and play until John showed up, you know, because the rehearsals were always at our house. Yeah. Um, cause my dad had some space in the basement and that's, there was a drum kit set up there and the keyboard player had his keys there and it was just like, okay, cool. We could just do everything here, you know? Um, so when John passed, he basically floated the idea to the rest of the band and said, Hey, is everybody cool with Ed just doing it? And they were like, yeah, why not? He can play. So we'll have him do it. So those were my first paying gigs when I was a teenager was, Yeah. I think the first gig I ever did was a, a bowling banquet and, uh, <laughs> you know, I made a hundred bucks. Yeah. And man, when, you know, when you're 13, 14 years old and somebody hands you a hundred bucks because you just played the drums for a couple of hours. Yeah. It's like, okay, I can get used to this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what, man, so, it's, it's however many years later and I still get a hundred bucks for a gig. So, <laughs> well, I know that's unfortunate, isn't it? You know, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, you could do you could do a, you could do a whole episode on that. Yeah, well, yeah, I believe me, it's coming. You know, 
Yeah. I mean, don't get me started, man. I mean, I live in Nashville, you know, all these bars making bank these days and, and they're not, and they're still making the band pass the tip jar around. I like, know. Give me a break. I know, know, man. Give me a break. It's, it, it's really crazy. It really is. I had, um, you know, not, not to get off track too much, but I had Rod Morgenstein on the show and he was talking about the Dixie Dregs back in the seventies playing at the exit Inn. And right. he said, you know, I think we were making like 500 bucks that night. I was like, well, you know, coincidentally, you know, the exit in still pays bands 500 bucks a night, <laughs> you know, 40 years later. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's insane. It, it really is. So you're playing kind of, you know, the, the top 40 hits of the days with your with your dad's band. Were you also kind of doing what? you know, most teenagers do and forming your own garage bands and those kind of projects, or did you um, just a little bit that that didn't really start for me until high school. Okay. I started playing around with some guys in high school. There's a guy that I still love to play music with. His name's Steve Cleary, who lives in Connecticut, guitar player. I started playing a lot of stuff with him and, and, uh, uh, this bass player called Max, who I, I worked with in a record store. We, we started putting music to original music together. It was weird, trippy, uh, uh, proggy Zappa S kind of stuff, which we never really did anything with, you know? Um, and, uh, I, I had a couple other guys that I played. We, I used to play parties with a couple of guys where we did like rush tunes and a couple of rainbow tunes and that kind of thing, you know, cause everybody was in the rush. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I had that stuff going on. Although, in high school, my, you know, we had a very popular marching band. So my, a lot of my focus was there, um, doing that marching band thing. And it really wasn't until after high school that I was sort of gigging regularly. You know, my, my, my dad's band that I was in when I was 13, 14, that only lasted about a year or two. And then I, you know, I kind of went through high school and then I didn't go to college right away. I didn't go to college till I was 21 years old. So the, period between high school and college, I was in a cover band in southeastern Connecticut, um, Rhode Island and whatnot. It's called Absolute R&B. And we had like three horn players and a rhythm section and a singer. And we did everything from, you know, Stax, Motown. Uh, we did uh, a couple of Chicago tunes because we had the horns, you know, we did stuff that was on the radio at the time, like Love Shack and things like that. And, and that band worked an awful lot. And, you know, everybody talks about like, you know, putting in the 10,000 hours, right? Yeah. And I, I put a lot of those 10,000 hours in with that band. And that was just a really great experience for me because I also got to learn a bunch of material that I had sort of heard before, but had never really sat down and played like the stack stuff and some of the older Motown things. You know, we only did a couple of those things in, in my dad's band. So, <laughs> excuse me. Well, I mean, um, all of that old but that, was, that was that was a big learning experience for me being in that band. Yeah, I mean, all of that old, you know, Al Jackson Jr. stuff. I mean, my, you know, my gosh. I mean, and you talk about the 10,000 hours if you were playing in a band with horns and and kind of doing, you know, the the top 40 kind of stuff, you may have 10,000 hours on Brick House alone. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's and running. That stuff's really that stuff's really important. You know that stuff's really important, and I, and it, it, the the foundation for everything is in there. Yeah. You know, is in that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think a lot of guys have lost sight of that these days. You know, 
Well, I think a lot of people now it's like, you know, they, they get the very, very bare bones of, of how the instrument works or how any instrument works for that matter. And, you know, they know a little bit and then they just like go lock themselves in the room and watch YouTube videos. And I, I think that alone does not a great musician make. Well, there's a great danger with that, too, which people are talking about a little bit, but not enough, in my opinion. The danger with that is just because somebody has a YouTube channel doesn't mean that they exactly know what they're doing. Oh, you know? yeah, so for sure. These, these, young, these younger guys are, <laughs> you know, liking the YouTube channel that a million other people other, uh, like as well. And don't realize that the advice that they're getting on that YouTube channel might not be the best. Yeah. You know, um, but I always equate it to this, you know, in theory, if somebody gave me a whole bunch of wood and a nail gun, I should be able to build a house. <laughs> Doesn't mean it's going to prob- be a good house. <laughs> and, and probably could build a house. But it's not going to be a good house because I really don't know the first thing about building a house. <laughs> right on. You know? <laughs> so, because I haven't done it. I haven't put enough time into it. So whenever I'm on a YouTube thing, you know, the first thing I look for is a discography. Yeah. You know? Yeah. What recordings can I go listen to this person on? Oh, there aren't any. Yeah. That should be a tip that maybe you should be getting your information from somewhere else. And it doesn't mean that these people are awful. For all I know, they, they could be amazing. They just haven't gotten around to recording yet. But doubtful. Yeah. You know, doubtful. Um, so, yeah, it's a tricky. That's a tr- the YouTube thing is a tricky spot right now, I think, for, for, for a lot of people. It really is. And, you know, I see so many young players with, you know, tons and tons of potential. And, and, you know, I mean, I've been approached even by by, you know, contemporaries, people my age that now have kids that are teenagers that that want to get into drumming. And they say, hey, will you do lessons? And I'm like, I'm not an educator. I, I you know, I can barely read drum charts. Um, right. you, you know, the advice I would give you is find somebody that is an educator on the instrument, somebody that does this all the time. Right. And if you can't find that, which you should be able to in this day and age, but if you can't find a really good drum teacher, find somebody that plays 10 times as many gigs as me and take your son or daughter there, you know, somebody that's out there in the trenches working three, four nights a week, they're going to learn so much more from that person than somebody like me who, who, you know, plays, I don't know, 20, 30 shows a year, you know, and, do, and, and does some recording sessions. I can give you a basic foundation, but, you know, th- they need more than that to get going, really. Yeah, and the other problem, too, is a lot of times, especially kids that are starting later, um, it, you know, we live in this culture now where it's like they want it all and they want it all now. Yeah. It's like American Idol. It's like, well, if I just go do this, then I can do this. And it's like, okay, that's edited. That's the edited for television version. Like life doesn't work that way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So you, you have to learn to crawl before you can walk. So if you're willing to put the time in, you could, you could do great at it. If you're not willing to put the time in it, you know, 
If I, if I show you how to hold the sticks in lesson one and you come in in lesson two and you want me to teach you how to play under Sandman, well, guess what? <laughs> you, you, you don't have the capability to do that. Yeah, you, you've skipped a you few know? steps in there. <laughs> yeah, I could show it to you and you could take a shot at it, but I could tell you right now it's going to suck. Yeah. You know? So there's that aspect of it as well. So you mentioned that you waited a few years to go to college. Tell me a little bit about your college experience. Where, where did you end up going and, and what was that like <laughs> for you? My college experience was really interesting. I ended up at the University of Miami and um, I wasn't quite sure what I was getting myself into because I, I applied, I got accepted, I was able to, part of the delay was financial. Um, at this point, by the time I went, I was able to apply for financial aid simply on my own. Um, in which case they were willing to give me student loans and all this other stuff. Yeah. Um, what I didn't realize till later was, you know, the amount of money it was going to take to sort of finish it all off. And, <laughs> and then, and now, okay, now you got to pay it all back, you know? Right. Um, of course they're going to give you student loans because they're going to make bank on interest and yada, yada, yada. That's a different podcast. So, um, I ended up there and I flew down there with, you know, I didn't go to any kind of orientation or anything. It was like, I sent a tape. I got a letter that said, you got in, here's when we start. And like, I showed up like for like the first day of class. <laughs> so nice, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess it was a couple of days before cause I had to move into the dorm and all that other stuff. But, um, man, I, you know, I had a stick bag. I had like my rock and roll drum set stick bag. And so somewhere along the lines, like I didn't, because I didn't do orientation, like I didn't get the memo about everything I was going to need. <laughs> and so, you know, all the percussion majors had their, their stick bag, but then they had their mallet bag and they had their tambourine and they had their set of triangles and they had a, a drum kit and all this. And I'm like, well, drum kit, like, I mean, there'll be drums there. Right. Like, you know, <laughs> so I was an incredibly naive sort of, you know, 21 year old, um, you know, being in a place that I had never been before, you know, getting ready for college. And I had had like the first semester paid for, and that was it. Um, and I think I had like a hundred dollars in my, in my wallet. So like the first thing I did was I found a job cause I knew I was going to have to work as well while I was there. You know, I found a job at a record store and, um, just kind of got to it. Like, and I mean, it was a lot of hard work and, 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 uh, it was a truly amazing experience. I mean, I, I met a lot of wonderful people who are still figures in my life to this day. Um, I met people that are important to the trajectory of my career when I was at Miami, um, to say nothing of everything I learned when I was there, um, and the amount of playing that was going on while I was there as well. So, um, it was very intense. There's a lot of that time that I don't remember and people kind of laugh like, Oh, who remembers college? Blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> I wasn't that guy. It's because there was a lot of work being done. Plus I was working. I had a job as well yeah. and I was trying to play out whenever I could. So I just seem to have a feeling that uh, it, it feels like now looking back that for four years, I was just kind of 24 seven, like doing something, you know, either to, you know, doing the work to, to, to pass 
and or working so that I could stay there to do the work to, to, to get the degree, you know? Yeah. So it was a, it was an intense time. Um, but I wouldn't trade it for anything, man. I wouldn't trade it for anything. It was a great school to be at. Um, some of the people I was around, like I said, are, are mega talents that I'm still in touch with to this day. Jason Sutter, Brandon Buckley, um, uh, keyboard player, Jeff Babco was there when I was there. Uh, Kevin Stevens, a great drummer in Los Angeles was there at this time. Stuart Jean, who runs the, uh, the, uh, drum part of Musicians Institute in Los Angeles was there at that time. So it was just a, a really great place to be for sure. Well, I mean, the school is, is legendary amongst drummers. I mean, you mentioned a lot of them there, you know, but I mean, uh, um, Rod Morgenstein, you know, I mean, I, I mentioned him earlier, you know, he's one of my all time favorite drummers. He was the university oh, of sure. Miami grad and, you know, it's just a, a, an amazing school. And, you know, I had Brendan on the show and Brendan was like, look, you know, when I got done at Miami, I was ready to do anything in the music business. I wasn't just ready to like go, you know, join a band, you know, and play with Shakira or whatever, or, or Julio Iglesias or whatever the case may be. He was like, I was ready to do anything in the music industry. So I, I guess it, it pays for itself after the fact. For sure. You know, and I, and he's right about that. And I was a music ed major. A lot of these guys were performance majors and I was a music ed major because I, I wanted to not just be a drummer, you know? Yeah. And of course you're taking piano and you're taking theory and you're taking sight singing and all this other stuff. But I wanted to learn what about the other instruments, like what made them function, like what, you know, all, all of that stuff. So coming out of that, yeah, you know, but then I also, you know, I also studied jazz with Steve Bagby and Steve Rucker and, and all that too. So, He's absolutely right. I mean, by the time I was done there, it was like, whatever you got from me musically, like, I'm good to go. Yeah. You know, um, you know, particularly from the drum throne, you know, and then it was like, well, I, and I could always teach if, you know, if it doesn't work out you know, <laughs> in, in, the, in the schools, which I guess maybe was a little bit of a fallback for me at the time. But um, I didn't do it. You know, I graduated and I was working retail and I had a couple of job offers uh, to teach in schools. And like, you know, I'm not ready for this yet. Like I'm, I don't want to get, I don't, I'm afraid I'll get stuck in that pattern summers off and all that other stuff. And, and it wasn't really where my heart was. My heart was in, you know, being in a band. I wanted to be in a band. Yeah. Well, and that's exactly where you ended up, um, you, you know, and I, I was, you know, kind of teasing you beforehand, you know, my band that was, you know, right out of, you know, high school, college, you know, we were really chasing the dream and, you know, had some major label attention. This would have been, you know, 1998 or so. Um, when we were out on the road in 99, you know, I told you I could not turn on a radio anywhere without hearing Vertical Horizon. You know, I mean, yeah. you ended up yeah. in a band that was everywhere all the time. Talk to me a little bit about how you got hooked up with, with VH. Well, I was in, I was living in Boston. I moved to Boston after the Miami thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, I was working for Borders Books and Music in their, in their records, in their, uh, you know, music division up in Boston. And, um, I had gone out to, it's kind of a crazy story. I'll try to give you the short version here, but, but at borders, there was, they had these listening stations and one of them was 
devoted to sort of independent label stuff. And one of the records featured that month, this would have been in February or March of 96, was uh, Vertical Horizon. And the record was called Running on Ice. And it turns out that Matt Scannell, the, the singer, uh, one of the guitar player singers, was from the area. He's from Worcester, Massachusetts. So his mom was in the store sort of making sure that the product was where it was supposed to be, you know. Um, and anyway, she ended up talking to my boss. And later on, my boss comes up to me and he says, hey, uh, you know, remember that VH thing? We were because we had looked at the album cover and and thought that there was similarity to like Van Halen and you know, say, hey, these guys are going to get sued, you know. <laughs> hadn't, hadn't, hadn't heard a note of the music, but, but it, it had registered with us, you know. Yeah. Um, anyway, he said, yeah, it turns out they're local, and the guy's mom was here. And, and so later that day, Matt had called the store because they were playing in town uh, at a club called Mamakin in Boston. So he invited my boss down to the gig because he was nice to his mom, you know. So I became the mysterious plus one, and um, I went down to the gig. Now, at the gig, I ran into uh, the aforementioned Jason Sutter, and Jason knew the drummer they had at the time had just joined, and he didn't like it. He didn't like being on the road. It was a, It was one of those things of like, you know, he thought that that's what he wanted to do. And after about a month on the road, he was like, this is not for me. I do not want to be on the road, a traveling musician. So Jason knew that they were looking for a drummer. And he also knew that I was looking for a gig. And he said, you should talk to him after the gig. So that's what I did. Wow. I waited until the gig was over. And while I was at the gig, I was, I, first of all, I really enjoyed the music. Um, you know, I've been fortunate enough to do to play music that I like to play across my career, which is, it's been, a, uh, it's been, I've been pretty lucky with that. I think, um, you know, especially nowadays here in Nashville. I mean, I know a lot of guys that have really good gigs and, and, you know, would kind of rather be doing playing different music, you know? Yeah. Um, so, I've been lucky in that I've been able to play music that I really enjoy. So I really enjoyed the music and I talked to Matt afterwards and he's like, yeah, we're looking for a guy. Um, not really sure how we're going to go about all of it yet. We've got a couple more weeks of dates, yada, 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 but we exchanged information. And, um, later that week we had a really long talk on the phone and, um, you know, we had a lot of favorite music in common and, and whatnot. And so, I ended up sending them a tape and they liked the, the tape and um, we set up a live audition that we did at M Matt's mom's house in, in Worcester. And um, which ironically enough, it, it, in, in that basement, we did a, a lot of the pre-production work for everything you want. We did, we did in Matt's wow, mom's basement God. yeah, in, Wor in Worcester, Massachusetts. That's um, crazy. But yeah, they, they, they said, you know, it, it was, it was my, it was only really my second audition for like a, a gig and I played and you know, they were like, Hey, can you give us a second? I was like, sure. I kind of went upstairs and then they came up and they're like, yeah, we're, we're doing a couple of gigs next week and we'd really like you to do them. And like, let's see how that goes. And 
and we'll do that. And I said, okay, great. So the first gig was at a place called Nectar's in Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont. And uh, it was a two-set thing. We were going to play a set and then take a little break and then come out and play another set. Um, I'd learned a bunch of material, and basically what happened is after the first set, they said, dude, we have a six-week tour coming up, and, and we want you to do it. <laughs> you know, And I said, great, I'll do it. And so I took a leave of absence from Borders because – you know, I still wanted to have my job when I got back. So you didn't just straight up weeks. quit. You, you, you no, actually asked no. for time off. Okay. That's I said, I, smart yeah, man. I asked if we could, <laughs> yeah. I asked if we, if we could do like a leave of absence type kind of thing. And, <laughs> and so I did the six weeks and the, and I, and that was it, dude. I thought I'd made it. I mean, we were touring in an RV. We were sleeping on people's <laughs> floors. We were sleeping in campgrounds, like, you know, uh, setting up on my own gear, tearing down all my own gear. And I'm just like, this is great. You know, I'm playing original music that I really like with these people that I like. And there's an audience there already. You know, there was the, like the college roots scene. Um, and I was going to places I'd, I'd, I'd never been to before playing in like North Carolina and Texas and Georgia and, and meeting all these wonderful people, you know, some of who are, are really great friends to this day. So um, that's how all of that kind of got started. I came back after the six weeks and worked at borders for about another month. And then we, I was going on the road again. And the woman at borders was like, you know, I'm not sure how much many times we can do this. And I said, <laughs> you know what? I'm then I'm going to give you my notice. Cause I, you know, I just felt good about it. You know, there are things that I've been involved in where you just kind of feel like it's going to be cool or it's not going to be cool or it's, it's going to go the way you want, or it's not going to go the way you want. Like the, there always seems to be some underlying feeling you can sort of gauge. And I just felt like there was something there um, and that I was going to be able to work doing it. And, you know, these guys were pretty business savvy for an independent band. You know, it was going to be a salaried thing. Um, it wasn't a huge salary. In fact, it was less than I was making it working 40 hours a week at retail, but it was enough to go do it. Yeah. And, um, and that was it. So that was in 96, summer of 96. Um, and that was, that was it. I have not, I've been a musician, full-time musician ever since. Wow, man. I mean, yeah. So, you know, and obviously, you know, we're, we're, you know, we don't have unlimited time, but, and I don't want to gloss any of this over. So we've got to have you back to kind of hear some of the backstories, but, (laughs) but basically, you know, vertical horizon, you know, put out that, that great record that was just everywhere. And the record business was really changing a lot around that time. As a matter of fact, you know, the labels that, that my band was talking to, I just remember one day, Seagram's like the alcohol company bought like 35 record labels in one day. And like every A and R person that we knew was unemployed. Like you couldn't find them. Um, Well, you know, that happened, that happened in between the the vertical records in between everything you want and the record that followed, followed that, which is called go while we were making go, all that stuff that you're talking about was going on. So our support team at the label had essentially all been let go. Yeah. It so. all, it all been let go. So we didn't have anybody sort of, 
you know, championing us at the label anymore. And so once the label was sort of restructured and the guy that was running it decided what kind of label it was going to be and how he was going to do things, they weren't interested in us at all. It didn't matter that we had had a multi-platinum record. Yeah. They didn't care. Right. So you, they put, didn't care. you put out a great follow-up and it goes plywood because nobody's pushing it to radio. Nobody's giving you a, a budget for a video. I mean, it's just all of that business stuff that happens in the music industry. And I know that, that, you know, I've read in other interviews and heard you in other interviews say that you became really, you know, I guess disenfranchised at that point and, you know, disheartened with everything that was going on. Um, and well, that- you know, that was, that was more, that was more Matt, you know, Matt was, I could see the writing on the wall with the go record. And I was like, you know what? who cares? Like, let's, hell, we could stay indie at this point. And, you know, if we're managed properly, like we could just keep doing what we're doing and we don't have to share it with a record label. Let's, let's just keep doing our thing, you know? And that wasn't too popular a sentiment and looking around for another label. It was a weird time because the the wind had got, gotten taken out of the sales a little bit and people had different priorities at that time. I had had my first child and, you know, I was staring down the barrel of 2005 with nothing. Like it didn't look like vertical horizon was going to do anything. I didn't even know if vertical horizon was even still going to be a thing, you know, like some of, some of those discussions had been had. Well, and then and, the opportunity came to audition for the Doobie Brothers. Well, and and not to interrupt your train of thought, but there, sure. you know, but I want to make sure this is, after all, a drum show. Um, <laughs> right. You know, and I don't know how much of the writing you did with Vertical Horizon, but suffice it to say, you probably weren't getting as much publishing income as the other guys that, no. you know, so they could take a year or two off. Drummers, unless you're writing the hits, you don't have that income stream. So there's some income inequality going on there as well. Oh, very much so. And I mean, not to get too deep into it, but, you know, our thing was like the writer got the publishing. So I didn't get any publishing. Um, And we had had discussions about maybe finding a way to, to fix that, because for those of you that don't know, that's where the majority of the money is, is in music publishing. Um, you can make a decent penny touring. You can make a decent penny with merch, but all the sort of, you know, the, the, the bigger stream is with music publishing. And, you know, we had had discussions about this kind of thing and they had kind of gone nowhere. So when the opportunity came up to sort of do something else, really, I sort of, again, naively thought, well, if I get the Doobie gig, I can do the Doobies in 2005 and maybe VH will like reconvene in the winter and have a meeting and talk about, okay, what do we, what do we do now? What are we going to do next year? You know, I thought maybe we were just going to take a year off or something like that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> anywho, it became apparent that that's not really how things were going to go. So when I did get the Doobie gig, I sort of, you know, threw a little, uh, quote, or whatever out there for the fans that just sort of said, Hey, I've, I've left, you know, I'm, I'm going to go do this. It's sort of a dream gig. And, 
And I didn't get too deep into the vertical stuff because at the time, you know, I didn't feel like it was really anybody's business and, and all that. Um, but yeah, there was, there was, a, a an inequality thing there that we were trying to rectify. And it just, the more, it, you know, the more it got ignored, the more I became less interested in sort of sticking around, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it makes total sense. I mean, you, like you said, you, you have a child, you know, you, you have a home someplace, you know, to rear the child in. You've got bills and, and you've got to work, um, especially if that publishing you know, money isn't streaming in every quarter, you know, from ASCAP or BMI. Um, so you found this opportunity to play with, you know, arguably one of the biggest bands from the 70s. You know, I mean, I, I think that decade, the doobies kind of owned the airwaves uh, for the most part. Um, it's an established band. You get offered that gig and I think I've heard you say someplace before that you thought you would be there for five years and here you are on year 15. Yeah. I got some advice from a, an industry vet and who basically said, Oh dude, that, you know, that'd be a great opportunity for you. You get at least five years out of it. <laughs> and, I, and I thought, great five years. So that, that, that'll be cool. And then I can figure out what to do after that. And here we are on, on the 15th. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's gotta be, um, a little bit weird. And, and, you know, look, I, I don't want to say anything, you know, untoward here towards the, the rest of the guys, but you're a lot younger than the Doobie brothers, you know, let, let, let's face it, you know, the, the core group of guys that's, that's in that band, you're a lot younger. Did you have any, you know, uh, reservations about being, you know, 10 years younger than everybody else in the band? No. Well, I mean, I'm 20 years younger than <laughs> Pat and Tommy, you know, <laughs> so um, not really. I mean, the thing with the doobie thing was, was, was wild because, you know, I was a fan when I was a kid, my parents were fans. Um, and like by fan, I mean, I was a fan. Like I wrote a letter to the fan club when I was 11 years old. Oh, no like, way. Yeah, that's a true story. Oh my! Wrote a letter God. to the Doobie Brothers fan club when I was 11 years old, and you know Chet and Keith were on the cover of Modern Drummer, and I thought that maybe I'd write a book about them, and you know th these silly things you think about when you're younger. Um, but yeah, I was way in, way into the Doobie Brothers, and um, so it was a joy to me later on that I became friends with Michael Hossack because he was a Vertical Horizon fan, and he. Uh, you know, he's on all those original recordings, listen to the music, long train running, China Grove, black water. I mean, that, that's all Mike. And, um, he was doing the gig with Keith Knutson at the time and Keith, unfortunately, uh, passed away. So he called me up and he, you know, he knew from being my friend and from us having conversations that I was a little sort of frustrated with what was going on in the VH camp. And he said, you know, I don't know what's going on with those guys, but we're going to have auditions. Do you want to, come play. Um, they weren't doing a cattle call. They were just inviting, uh, I think it was six people, eight people, something like that, um, to this sort of closed audition in Southern California. And from those people, they were going to pick somebody for the gig. And I said, I'd love to, you know, and I honestly wouldn't allow myself to get fired up about it. Like I was fired up about, going to California, being in the doobies for like a half an hour. And if it wasn't too weird, maybe 
getting a photo with everybody. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? You were, I, you were I, just I, happy I, to be there jamming with the Doobie Brothers. I was just happy to be there and, and to be part of this thing for, for a, a moment, you know, because I played all those songs in bar bands before and played along with all those records when I was growing up. And here was an opportunity for me to play those songs with those guys, with my friend on the other drum kit. And like, you know, they had guys that they knew that were auditioning. They had people who, you know, uh, have names in the business that were auditioning. And I just wouldn't, I kind of wouldn't allow myself to go there. And then I figured, you know what, if by some strange thing I get the gig, well then great. But if not, I won't be disappointed because I didn't get all excited about it, you know? Yeah, right on. So I wasn't quite sure what to do with this information. So actually the first person I called was Matt from Vertical Horizon. And I said, you know, what are we, are we doing anything this year? Cause I just got a call for a possible opportunity. I got this kid, you know, like we had done well on the road and everything, but like rainy day money's rainy day money. It's not pay the rent money, you right, know? Right, right. So, um, he was like, dude, your, your dream gig. Like you have to, you have to go, you have to go to that audition. You have to do that. And so that kind of gave me an indication of where the vertical thing was, you know? And so I went and auditioned and, uh, got the gig. Wow. And, and 15 yeah. years later, you know, and, and I, you know, like I said, I've seen the band a bunch of times. Um, how many dates are you guys averaging now each year? It's usually about 80 shows. Oh, so, so you're busy then. I mean, it's, it, you know, yeah. okay. It's like, a, it's like 120 days on the road. Sometimes, sometimes a little less. Okay. So, but, well, you know, but, some yeah, of the, we, we, we stay fairly busy. Yeah. Some of the older bands, you know, that have been around a long time, they do, you know, 30 dates in the summer and, and the end, you know, so I didn't right. know exactly how busy you were. But when you're not on the road with the doobies, are you teaching? Are you doing tracks for folks? I mean, what what do you do in your downtime? Yeah, I've done I've done tracks for folks here and there. Um, I'm not really set up for it, but in my place, but I've got places that I can go to to do that. Um, you know, I play around town a little bit, but not a lot because, as as per our aforementioned conversation, like I. You know, I don't think I'm above it, but I'm not, I'm not going to play for free. Yeah. You know, I mean, it depends on who's on the gig. You know, if somebody's like, hey, come do this gig, Tony Levin's on it, and he's doing it for free, I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, but, but the, you know, those, that, those things don't happen. So, um, you know, I made a record uh, with a couple of friends of mine that I'm very proud of. Uh, called Button, and that has John Cowan from the Doobie Brothers on it, and uh, Keith Howland, who's the guitar player from the band Chicago. Um, you know, we would get together just to play, like, for fun, and just kind of jam. And we would teach ourselves, like, you like bad finger tunes and stuff, like, just for fun. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. So, and we ended up just kind of jamming around one afternoon and letting it, letting the music go wherever, and the following day I got an email from Keith that had about an hour and a half long MP3 attached to it. And it said, uh, it just said, I think there's some songs here. And he had earmarked a couple of places within the hour and a half that he wanted me to listen to. 
And sure enough, I thought he was right. So we got back together and sort of arranged these things that we were talking about and, and recorded them. And without even thinking about the fact that we were making a record or anything like that, we got, we got a record out of it, nine songs. Wow. And it's, uh, yeah, and it's pretty cool. We got a bunch of different keyboard players on there. Um, so that was something that, that took up a fair amount of my time over the last couple of years. And, um, yeah, I mean, I'll play for whoever calls me, you know, yeah, for the most part. That's cool. Well, you, know? you, you mentioned, you know, John Cowan a minute ago. And, you know, I, I, I've got to say this. I would listen to that guy sing the the ingredient list on a recipe card. I mean, I really right. would. Um, you know, Newgrass Revival and all that stuff. I mean, what a voice. And, you know, it was kind of before my time um, it, it, hanging out with all the guys at Nashville Drummers Jam, but I saw a great video of you and him doing Roxanne at the Stuart Copeland um, uh, you know, uh, tribute show for Nashville Drummers Jam. And my God, it was incredible. I mean, what a, what a musician. You know, he is a force of nature. I mean, that guy's one of the most natural, organic musicians I've ever played with in my life. And um, he's stunningly, uh, he's one of the best singers I've ever heard, ever. Yeah. Um, and playing music with him is an absolute joy. I got to play in his band for a couple of years also, which is another thing I was do, I would do in between Doobie stuff, is do gigs with the John Cowan band, basically going out and playing bluegrass music on a four-piece jazz kit. And that in itself was quite the education. I learned a lot about uh, playing. I mean, I didn't really know too much about bluegrass music. And then just going out on that circuit and playing with those people. I mean, these are some of the most talented musicians you've ever met in your life. Talk about improvisers. Oh, yeah. I mean... Yeah, I mean, just stunning, stunning stuff. And for the most part, the band was me and Jeff Autry and Shad Cobb on fiddle and John. And we would just go out and like play whatever, you know, from the stuff on John's records to we play Going to California by Zeppelin. We'd play Love's in Need of Love Today by Stevie Wonder. And I mean, John Cowan could sort of do anything. And the cool thing about the project, the Button Project, was... You know, hearing John not only singing, but playing bass on this sort of proggy, jam, bandish, roots stuff that it doesn't really have a category because it's kind of all over the place. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and, you know, the fact that with the exception of one song, which is a cover, it's all original material. And so, and he, you know, we kind of wrote the lyrics together, but most of them are his. And, um, you know, he would just come up with some of these soaring melodies. And it, and it, to the point at the end, I was just like, dude, like, why don't you do more of this? Yeah. You know? And, uh, yeah, it's just, he, he's an amazing, amazingly talented, talented guy to, to play music with, for sure. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, like I said, I would listen to him sing the phone book or whatever. I mean, he's just got that voice. And, you know, you, you were talking a little bit about bluegrass there, and I've got to get a plug in here 
for the fact that, you know, I am Kentucky born and bred. So, you know, <laughs> probably the first music I ever heard in my life was bluegrass. And, right. you know, it, it, and people have asked me a lot. They were like, you know, why are there never any drums in bluegrass music? And I'm like, well, you know, the, the traditionalist bluegrass music, you don't need it, man. If you have an upright bass and a good guitarist, you've got right. you've got the kick and the snare right there. You know, I mean, and it's just, it's so rhythmic and all, you know, all that two, four time stuff and and cut time. And it's just, it's amazing. So if the next time you're doing some gigs like that, let me know, I will drive down to see that. Okay. (laughs) I didn't know that was going on. So yeah, I haven't done it in a while. He's sort of gone back to the traditional thing, but you're right, man. I would show up at some of these gigs with a drum kit and, and, oh man, some of the looks that I would get from, from some of the diehards, you know, yeah, like this like, doesn't I know, belong I know, here. <laughs> I know I'm not supposed to be here. There's not supposed to be drums on a bluegrass gig, but just, just, just give me, just hear me out. <laughs> you know, I promise not to wreck any, uh, <laughs> any yeah. Dr. Ralph Stanley tunes. I won't do but it. it so. But but it was great because by the end of it, it was, you know, I would hear things, you know, we'd all be out at the merch table and I would hear things like, uh, you know, I wasn't so sure about the drums, but you really know how to stay out of the way. <laughs> yeah, well, that's quite possibly the best compliment anybody can ever get is like, you you know, you, you stayed out of the way. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's, it's funny. You know, John would say like during the gig on stage, he would he would say, you know, this guy's the only drummer that I've ever had to ask to play louder. He's like, you know, on the doobie gig, he's back there like cranking it out. And he's like, on this gig, he's so subtle. And sometimes I have to say, Hey man, you could you play a little bit louder, you know? So, uh, but yeah, that, that, that stuff was a lot of fun. And we, we played a lot in Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, um, you know, uh, with, with John and, and, uh, even cool things like Merle Fest and, and Telluride, you know, when you play in Telluride and like you're a drummer that doesn't know much about bluegrass and you're out there and you're playing Colin Baton Rouge with John and with Bela and with Sam Bush, it's like, all right, this is kind of cool. Yeah. Oh yeah, man. You know? That's, that's really cool stuff. So, well, Ed, man, this has just been so awesome. I appreciate you coming on. And now one of my traditions that that we have here on the drum shuffle is we always ask our guests for a good piece of advice and you know it can be anything you want it to be but what you know one good piece of advice would you offer up to all the other drummers and musicians out there um the the piece of advice well the one thing i always kind of go to is um something i heard pat Matheny say once the guitar player and I think nowadays it's more important than ever. And his thing was always like, you know, decide what it is you want to do like within music and then do that. Like don't allow yourself to get sidetracked or talked out of something. You know, if you have an idea of what it is you want to do, use every ounce of energy you have in in manifesting that and in making that happen because at the end of the day, as a musician, you will be happiest doing what you want to be doing. And I I think that's a a really important 
thing that gets lost a lot these days because a lot of people just like they just want to get in there they're like they're 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 so hungry that they'll do anything and it's like well if you do that you might get stuck somewhere that you don't want to be or might be doing something you don't want to be doing or playing music that you don't really want to be playing so figure out what it is that you want to do you know within the world of music and then go do that like don't take no for an answer yeah yeah, I mean, that's that's great advice. And, you know, you can kind of turn that around backwards from, you know, the, the business side of things. And I'm thinking of the Doobies right now as I say this. If the Doobies were a brand new band today and they went to their label and said, hey, we've got this great song called Black Water that we want to put on the record. It would never not see a chance. not a chance in hell that that would ever see the light of day today. Sometimes when you have that visionary idea, you just got to do it. Well, and you have to go play. I mean, go play with as many people as you can play with. You'll find that magic combination of people. And and don't ask me how you'll know, because you'll just know it's if I knew I'd bottle it and sell it and retire. Like you'll (laughs) just know you'll, you'll just know when it's working with, with that group of people and, and go out and play. You can only do so much sitting at home and and keeping up with your socials and all that stuff. You gotta go out and meet people, um, talk to people, play music with people, and you know you'll be able to go out and make a living at it. You know, I think the days of the of the rock star mansion on the hill are probably over, but who cares? If that's your thing, like go do something else. Yeah. If well, you want to be a working musician, you can still do that. You can still do that. Yeah, it's just like you said, it, it, the business is structured in such a way that the artist gets paid last, you know, and it always has been. But it's even worse now. Um, you know, you're you're probably not going to get filthy, stinking rich doing this, um, but you can have a really good life as a musician still yet. Absolutely. But, you know, to your point, be true to yourself, figure out what it is you want to do and go do it. And that's ultimately it. And you know what? It takes a lot of wisdom and it takes a lot of patience. But those are the that's the deal. You know, it it really is. E.T., man, again, we've got to have you back because there's so much that we didn't touch on. But I really, really appreciate your time. Um, Everybody can go out to the Doobie Brothers website and check those tour dates, uh, grab tickets go see Ed playing with the Doobie Brothers. It's just a, a, a marvelous show. As I said earlier, you're going to get exactly what you think you're going to get when you go to a Doobie Brothers show. Uh, you guys are out on the road with Santana this summer. What a package. So um, Yeah, it'll be fun. And we'll be out doing theaters this fall as well. Um, can I plug Instagram? Because I finally, I finally caved in and joined Instagram. <laughs> Ed is finally so, on Instagram with the rest of us. Please do. I know. I'm finally, because I'm always late to the party, man. But yeah, it's, <laughs> I'm at Ed Toth Drums on Instagram. If anybody wants to follow my thing, uh, I'd love to have you. Yeah, and I am following Ed. I, I would like to say that I think I was follower number 28 or something like that. <laughs> I mean, I was... I was in on the ground floor of the Ed Toth Instagram account. So I, that's, a, that's a proud moment for me. Ed, thank you so much, brother. We'll have you back anytime, man. Yeah, I would love to come back and do a part two, man. Thanks for doing this. Absolutely. We'll talk to you soon, brother. All right. Take care. See ya.
All right, everybody, that's going to wrap up episode 71 of the Drum Shuffle. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We simply cannot do this without each and every one of you listening week in and week out. Many, many thanks go out to Ed Toth for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on the Drum Shuffle and chat with us for a bit. Make sure you go ahead and hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using to listen in. Uh, We do have some fantastic episodes coming up over the next few weeks, and you're not going to want to miss those. Also, make sure you send us your emails throughout the week. We love hearing from you, and we do answer all of those. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where you can send us an email. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com, and you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. Uh, and while you're there, look at all those social media links Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, uh, all that good stuff. Follow us on those platforms as well. We do try to keep you guys up to date with what's going on with the show via those social media platforms. The number one thing you can do to help us out here at the Drum Shuffle is share a link with a friend. If you know somebody that would like to hear these interviews uh, and tune into our show week in and week out, send them a real quick link to the drumshuffle.com. That helps us more than you'll ever know. Again, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. So, until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. 